Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey, pelvic people. So welcome back to an article by Siv Morkved, Carrie Bow, and Salvinson on pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy to prevent urinary incontinence. Now, this was a single blind randomized control trial. And we're going to make this a really exciting episode by making it a triple threat of the last three articles of week four on pregnancy and postpartum. We're really going out with a bang here. So this is another one of those abstract reviews to start with, and we're going to jump right in. The objective was to assess whether intensive pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy could prevent urinary incontinence. Now, we know that pregnancy and vaginal delivery are main risk factors in the development of urinary incontinence. As clinicians, we're especially aware of the impact that urinary incontinence has on quality of life. Now, for methods, the authors conducted a single-blind, randomized control trial, and this was performed at Trondheim University Hospital and within three outpatient PT clinics. 301 healthy nulliparous women were randomly allocated to a training, so 148 were in the training, or in a control group where 153 were in. The training group attended a 12-week intensive pelvic floor muscle training program during pregnancy, and that was supervised by PTs. The control group received just customary information. The primary outcome measure was a self-reported symptom of urinary incontinence, and the secondary outcome measure was pelvic floor muscle strength. Now, I realize all of that information is vague, right? What's customary information? What type of urinary incontinence? I could go on. Unfortunately, I don't have that information. So on to results. At follow-up, significantly fewer women in the training group reported urinary incontinence, so 32% reported that, versus 48% at 36 weeks pregnancy. And then 20% who were in the training group compared to 32% who were in the control group reported urinary incontinence three months after delivery. Now the p-value for 36 weeks pregnancy was 0.007 and for three months after delivery was 0.018. According to numbers needed to treat, intensive pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy prevented urinary incontinence in about one in six women during pregnancy and one in eight women after delivery. Pelvic floor muscle strength was significantly higher in the training group at 38 weeks pregnancy with a p-value of 0.008 and three months after delivery with a p-value of 0.048. Remember that p-value is important as it's used to validate a hypothesis against data. A p-value of 0.05 or lower is generally considered statistically significant. And in general, remember that the lower the p-value, the greater the statistical significance of the observed difference. So basically what we're saying is that all of the outcomes were statistically significant that were presented in these results. So I also think it's important to note though, if the p-value is below the threshold of significance, typically that 0.05, then you reject the null hypothesis, but that doesn't always mean that the alternative hypothesis is true. So let's circle back to the article and get into conclusion. For those of you who don't care about those numbers, just ignore them. 
The authors found and concluded that intensive pelvic floor muscle training during pregnancy prevents urinary incontinence during pregnancy and after delivery. Pelvic floor muscle strength improved significantly after intensive pelvic floor muscle training. So next up, we're going to move into an article review by Nielsen Wickmar in 2005 on the effect of three different PT treatments on pain and activity in pregnant women with pelvic girdle pain. This was a randomized clinical trial with three, six, and 12-month follow-ups postpartum. So these authors are Swedish, and the data that they collected was within Stockholm. The authors in full include Lena Nilsson Wickmar, who is a PT and a PhD, Kirsten Holm, who is a PT, Rolf Ortstrajet, who is a PT, and Karen Harms Ringdahl, who is a PT, PhD. This is also another abstract. So while, again, it's not all-encompassing on their data and their findings, with some of these multi-follow-up studies, sometimes I just like to get a more concise result and a conclusion. Now, we know that this is a randomized assessor-blind clinical trial. The objective being to compare three different PT treatments with respect to pain and activity in women with pelvic girdle pain during pregnancy and three, six, and 12-month postpartum. They note that in spite of the high prevalence of back pain during pregnancy, documented treatment programs are still pretty limited. So let's talk about their methods. Based on a clinical exam, 118 women with pelvic girdle pain diagnosed during pregnancy were randomized into three different treatment groups, an information group, which was the use of a non-elastic SI belt and oral and written information about pelvic girdle pain. There are about 40 women in that group, a home exercise group, which is same as an information group, but with the addition of a home exercise program. And there are 41 women in that. And then the in-clinic exercise group, which was the same as the information group, plus participation in a training program, which had 37 people. Now, pain intensity was rated on a visual analog scale from 0 to 100 and marked on a pain drawing concerning localization. The activity ability was scored during the disability rating index, covering 12 daily items. Outcome measures were obtained at inclusion on average in gestation week 38 and 3, 6, and 12 months postpartum. As for results, the authors found no significant difference among the three groups during pregnancy or at the follow-ups postpartum regarding pain and activity. In all groups, pain decreased and the activity ability increased between gestation week 38 and 12 months postpartum. They also concluded that women with pelvic girdle pain seemed to improve with time in all three treatment groups. Neither the home nor the in-clinic exercises had any additional value above giving a non-elastic SI belt and information. What would be great about having the full text for this article would be able to see what the treatments looked like, um, some of their discussion and the limitations of the study, as well as their inclusion and their exclusion data. But we'll just take this article for what it is. Okay, our last article is not just an article review, which is great. Um, We can actually dive a little bit further into it. So our last article is by Oaken in 2006 on associations of physical activity and inactivity before and during pregnancy with glucose tolerance. The author list for this article includes Emily Oaken, who is an MD MPH, Yi Ning, who is an MD MPH, Cheryl Yifis Scheiman, who is an MPH, Jenny Radeski, Janet Rich Edwards, and Matthew Gilman, who is an MD. So this is a full article text, so we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. 
So let's start with the purpose of this article. The authors are investigating associations of physical activity and TV watching before and during pregnancy with risk of gestational diabetes mellitus, which I'm going to call GDM, and abnormal glucose tolerance. The combination of GDM with less severe impaired glucose tolerance. So GDM complicates 2-5% to of pregnancy in the U.S., and it's associated with increased rates of medical complications of pregnancy, as well as longer-term risks such as obesity and type 2 diabetes for both the mother and the child. An even larger proportion of pregnant women develop abnormal glucose tolerance, which is going to incorporate the more common but less extreme impaired glucose tolerance. Other than maternal weight, established risk factors including advanced maternal age, non-white race or ethnicity, parity, previous delivery of a macrosomic infant, and family history of diabetes are not easily changed. The authors note that strong evidence from observational studies suggests that physical activity prevents type 2 diabetes in adult men and women. Some previous studies have found that physical activity before pregnancy reduces that risk for GDM, although none has evaluated association with the abnormal glucose tolerance. So they wanted to look at that too. So again, their purpose for this study was to examine the associations of physical activity and TV watching, both before and during pregnancy, as well as with the risk for GDM and abnormal glucose tolerance. Now, their hypothesis was that physical activity either before or during pregnancy would lower risks of both GDM and abnormal glucose tolerance. So then let's jump into the methods. The authors recruited women who were going to their first prenatal visit in eastern Massachusetts between the dates of 1999 and 2002. Something that I have to include that's a little irrelevant was that the Human Subjects Committee of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare approved all study protocols. So in case anyone wasn't fully sure this didn't take place in Massachusetts, the Pilgrim and the Harvard is going to give it away. (laughs) Okay, so they enrolled 63% of eligible participants, resulting in 2,128 women who delivered live infants. They excluded a few from the analysis. So those are going to look like 20 women with a history of type 1 or type 2 diabetes, 24 women who had no measurement of blood glucose concentration during pregnancy, 259 women who didn't report any information on physical activity or TV watching, and then 20 who had missing information on pre-pregnancy body mass index or history of GDM. So now we're whittled down to that 1,800 included in the analysis. Of note, women not included were less likely to be white, but rates of GDM and abnormal glucose tolerance did not differ among excluded compared with included white and non-white women. So among those included participants, 1,600 women provided information about their behaviors during the year before pregnancy, and about 1,600 women also provided information about behaviors during their pregnancy. After that first initial visit that they met these women, participants completed a questionnaire about their activity habits the 12 months before pregnancy. So the authors wanted to know about weekly hours spent in three different classes of activity. One being just walking for fun or exercise, including to or from work, but not at work. Two being light to moderate physical activities like yoga, bowling, stretching classes, skating, but not including walking. And three being vigorous physical activities like jogging, swimming, cycling, aerobic classes, skiing, or similar activities. They also used a questionnaire modified from the physical activity scale for the elderly or PACE, Women also reported the average number of hours per week that they had spent watching TV or videos. 
At 26 to 28 weeks of gestation using the same questions, women reported an average physical activity and TV watching during the preceding three months. So the authors define total physical activity as time spent in walking, light to moderate activities, vigorous activities, combined and analyze this exposure in categories that might translate to more specific recommendations. Those recommendations being things like two hours or less, three to six hours, seven to 13 hours, and 14 hours or more, and that would be weekly. So there was also less than 30 minutes, 30 minutes to less than an hour, one hour to less than two hours, or two hours or more daily. So the authors define sedentary lifestyle as two or fewer weekly hours of total physical activity based on current recommendations that adults, including pregnant women, should accumulate at least 30 minutes of exercise a day. In the study, women were routinely screened for gestational diabetes at 26 to 28 weeks of gestation with a non-fasting oral glucose challenge test in which venous blood was sampled one hour after that glucose load. If the one-hour glucose result was at least 140 milligrams per deciliters, the participant was referred to a 100-gram fasting glucose three-hour tolerance test. Normal results were a blood glucose below 95 at baseline, below 180, below 180 at one hour, below 155 at two hours, and below 140 at three hours. So they categorized participants with a normal screening glucose challenge as having a normal glucose tolerance and those who failed the challenge as having an abnormal glucose tolerance. They classified those with at least two abnormal results on the fasting glucose tolerance test as having GDM. For the 30 participants with an abnormal glucose challenge test, but no three-hour tolerance test performed, they reviewed all lab results, including a random finger stick glucose and the text of the clinical medical record to identify 19 cases of GDM in total. The authors also looked at things like age, race and ethnicity, parity, education, marital status, and smoking history, as well as pre-pregnancy BMI. Now, each woman reported her history of gestational diabetes in prior pregnancies, as well as whether her mother had a history of diabetes as well. For those of you wondering, they did assess diet during pregnancy, but they didn't include dietary factors such as intake of total energy, fat, carb, fiber, or glycemic load in the present analysis because diet wasn't not associated with glucose tolerance in this specific cohort. The article also goes a little bit more on the covariates, modifications for that pace, and evaluation of combined effects, as well as more information on what they used for analysis if you're more interested in some of those finer details. But we're going to head towards results. So among about the 1,800 study participants, they identified 83% of women with normal glucose tolerance and 17% with abnormal glucose tolerance, as well as 5% with GDM. Now, one-third of those participants were non-white, including 13% Black and 6% Hispanic women. The mean age was 32. The mean pre-pregnancy BMI was 24.6. Compared with women who had a normal glucose tolerance, women with GDM or abnormal glucose tolerance were more likely to be older, be overweight or obese, be Hispanic or Asian, have a history of GDM in a previous pregnancy, or to have reported a history of diabetes within their own mothers. 
Women with GDM were somewhat more likely to gain less than 8 kilograms by 26 weeks gestation, but women with abnormal glucose tolerance had no difference in weight gain. And that was the mean weight gain by 26 weeks gestation, by the way, 8 kilograms, which converts to 17 U.S. pounds. Now, 13% of women reported less than two weekly hours of walking, and walking frequency didn't change appreciably from pre-pregnancy to during pregnancy. The prevalences of both any light to moderate and any vigorous activity decreased from before pregnancy to during pregnancy, and a sedentary lifestyle increased. 34% of women also viewed at least two hours of TV daily, both before and during pregnancy. On a multivariable analysis, walking two or more hours daily, either before or during pregnancy, was associated with somewhat reduced risk for both GDM and abnormal glucose tolerance. Now, light to moderate activity before pregnancy wasn't associated with a reduced risk for GDM and abnormal glucose levels, but light to moderate activity during pregnancy was associated with that lower risk. On the other hand, vigorous activity during the year before pregnancy was associated with a reduced risk for GDM and abnormal glucose tolerance. And that adjusted prevalence of GDM was 4.7 among women not engaging in vigorous activity before pregnancy and 2.7 among women engaging in vigorous activity. There was a less significant spread of percentage for those performing vigorous activity and not for abnormal glucose levels though. So the authors note, if vigorous exercise was promoted prior to pregnancy, and of course had the same outcome as a study, then one case of GDM would be prevented for every 49 women engaging in vigorous activity. And also one in 28 of abnormal glucose would be prevented. Vigorous activity during pregnancy had a weaker beneficial effect, but Participating in either light to moderate or vigorous activity during pregnancy was associated with somewhat reduced risk for GDM and abnormal blood glucose. So a greater duration of total activity suggested a benefit and a sedentary lifestyle suggested harm, although neither exposure achieved that statistical significance that we're looking for. When they restricted analysis to nulliparous women, physical activity actually appeared to be even more beneficial. So the authors also investigated whether the effect of physical activity on abnormal glucose tolerance varied according to pre-pregnancy BMI. So among women with a pre-pregnancy BMI less than 25, vigorous activity during pregnancy was protective against development of that abnormal glucose tolerance, but unfortunately, among women with a BMI of 25 or more, vigorous activity was not beneficial. If we're comparing with women who reported no vigorous activity before pregnancy and no light to moderate or vigorous activity during pregnancy, those who reported activity at both time points had a somewhat reduced risk for both GDM and abnormal glucose tolerance. Okay, so discussion time. In this cohort study, including over 1,800 women, they found that women who engaged in vigorous physical activity before pregnancy and light to moderate or vigorous activity during pregnancy experienced a reduced risk for developing gestational diabetes and abnormal glucose tolerance. Women who were active both before and during pregnancy particularly benefited, walking was somewhat protective, and a sedentary lifestyle was somewhat harmful. 
physical activity was way more beneficial among nulliparous women. Independent of exercise levels, sedentary behavior, especially watching TV, has been directly associated with the risk of type 2 diabetes in non-pregnant adults. But they didn't observe that TV watching, either before or during pregnancy, influenced that risk. The authors go on to discuss that skeletal muscle contraction triggers glucose uptake and promotes insulin sensitivity, and more intense exercise has a stronger hypoglycemic effect. Because many women reduce the intensity of their physical activity when they're pregnant, they're finding that even light to moderate activity during pregnancy is going to reduce those risks and allow for recommendations that many pregnant women will actually be likely and able to follow. The authors also found a particular benefit of physical activity among women of normal pre-pregnancy BMI. This finding contrasts with previous studies which have found either or no difference. Some limitations of this study includes recall bias from the participants, as some of them may have inaccurately reported their behaviors on either side, whether that's activity or TV watching. They also didn't assess for occupational activity, and another limitation being that this study's participants were predominantly white, generally well-educated, and they all resided in Massachusetts. Therefore, results may not always be able to be generalizable to other populations. So let's get to some take-home points. Vigorous physical activity before pregnancy and continuation of activity from before pregnancy into early pregnancy may reduce a woman's risk for developing abnormal glucose tolerance and GDM. So clinicians should consider recommending vigorous physical activity to their patients who are contemplating pregnancy or in early pregnancy to promote normal glucose tolerance and to establish healthy, lifelong habits. So... That's it for our week four on pregnancy and postpartum. I hope these reviews are helpful for you, even the abstracts. That being said, every week ends with a joke to commemorate your listening efforts, especially after this packed episode. And what should a joke have in common with pregnancy? A good delivery. So there's a lot of really lame pregnancy jokes. Um, Week five is also on special topics in pregnancy and postpartum, so I'm going to try my best here and after next week's. So... A woman was in labor when she suddenly started yelling, shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, didn't, can't. And the OB looked at the woman and her husband knowingly and said, oh, don't worry. Those are just the contractions coming. All right. Everyone, congrats on finishing week four's article reviews. Next up, we have week five, which I can't believe I'm saying because this was such a long study guide week. So our next article outlined is by Matola in 2006 on VO2 peak prediction and exercise prescription for pregnant women. That being said, this was already reviewed in week two, so if you're feeling deja vu, rightly so. Feel free to circle back to that article if you'd like. That's again week two. I'll be uploading the next non-repeat article by Pivernick in 2006 on the impact of physical activity during pregnancy and postpartum on chronic disease risk next. Hope to see you all listening there. Bye, everyone.